Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. Now, we may be in May, but we have an Anzac Month hangover episode. As you may have been aware, Robert couldn't join us a couple of weeks ago to record, but he's with us today. He joined us for Long the Short and the Tall a couple of weeks ago, months ago now. Can't remember, it's been too long. <laughs> and as you know, historian extraordinaire written extensively about the war in the Far East. So what better film to talk about with us uh, than Kokoda, Robert? Welcome back to the show. Oh, it's so good to be back with you guys talking um, talking about these films. And, and I've got a little bit of uh, an affinity with Kokoda because um, I actually, believe it or not, have an Australian passport. I have a number of passports. Australian is one of them, uh, having wow. gone to school in Melbourne in the 1970s. So I was brought up with a, 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 this story and know it quite well. And in fact, my brother has walked the Kokoda Trail. Oh, who better to have on than Matt, eh? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So the movie is very, as he said, it's Kokoda, and the movie just follows a patrol of Chocos, militiamen, um, as they get lost in the jungles, uh, defending the Kokoda Trail in 1942. That's your your sort of um, elevator pitch there. Um, any thoughts before we move on to production and cast? Well, I just think overall it's an extremely good film. I think the, the, the general problem that I've got with... Um, these sorts of films is they 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 grab elements of truth and dr- dramatize them and you know Australians love nothing better than their military myths um all of which are grounded in, in reality but you know have been adorned uh on the way 
And that's the real challenge when we're looking at these sort of things. But I think on the whole, this film avoids those, um, those myths. And you know, for those people who, uh, and I've read a few reviews over the last week or two, who think that this is sort of made up and it's a, it's a pee into mateship and it didn't really happen. Well, they're actually mm. wrong because the Kokoda Trail was, you know, a historic reality, and the the, um, the the fighting was, I think, pretty well depicted in the film. Um, the horror of the monsoon and of the Japanese and of the terrain, all that sort of stuff was captured brilliantly well so overall and the psychological dimension to the fight to fighting the Japanese hair is is really important and I think one of the really interesting things that the film does bring out is the um the fact that actually the early militia soldiers uh from Australia who weren't particularly well trained and were thrown into New Guinea to stop the Japanese really were not prepared for what they had to fight and the Imperial Japanese Army as you've heard from me before was a formidable one of the most formidable fighting forces in the world and you've got these uh, Australian part-timers turning up to to fight them and it, it's a, it is an extraordinary story in and of itself. I, I need to start say at the outset that I'm not an expert in the Battle of Isarawara or of the Kokoda Trail although I've read a number of books on it and I you know but I do know quite a bit about how the Japanese fought and, and I think the way in which the film portrayed it is, is worth having a, a good conversation about. Mm, I agree it's um one of the more striking movies we've covered in Anzac Month, um, or that we would, you know, that we've looked at. Um, I know there are a few more that we had we didn't get to cover, but this one really has a style, it, it, and it stays with that style throughout. Um, and it's very different to the Australian movies that we've covered because I think the main ones that we did cover were the sort of the Australian New Wave, where yeah. all these all these movies were coming out with you know the f- people who went on to become very famous Australian actors like Mel Gibson, Sam Neill. But this one is very modern. It's a very different take to all those movies, and it it just has a really different feel to it. So maybe Matt, would you like to talk about the production, and then we can get more into it? Absolutely. It's a I suppose it's a new generation of filmmakers coming through, um, Australian filmmakers. It was directed and co-written by Alistair Grierson, um, and he's also uh, in 2014 uh, he directed Para's War about. Uh, the frontline cameraman who uh, won Australia's first Oscar for his his combat photography work apparently uh, he helped win it. It's all it's people think it's Para, but it's actually the director uh, Ken G Hall who actually won the Oscar. But uh, Para was the cameraman on the mm. uh, on the shoot. Yeah, he's featured in the film, isn't he? The director. Yeah. Well, I've only seen the trailer so far, but I, Rob and I were discussing this before we. Uh, we recorded and it's one we'd really like to, to cover on the show. It looks fabulous. It looks amazing, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, the film was co-written with John Lonnie. Um, music was composed by Grierson's longtime collaborator, uh, John Gray. And the cinematography, which I think we'll talk about a number of times throughout this 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 chat, uh, was done by Jules O'Loughlin. And he was a long time, another longtime collaborator with Grierson. And he recently shot some episodes of the TV series, the historical TV series, Black Sails, and uh, recently worked on uh, Hitman's Bodyguard with uh, Ryan Reynolds and uh, Samuel L. Jackson, yeah. which is a little bit different in tone to this one, but interesting nonetheless. Um, the stunt coordinator was Chris Anderson. Alan Mowbray was the armorer on the film, and he's worked on a number of interesting war movies throughout his career, including uh, 1995's The Last Bullet, uh, 1998's The Thin Red Line, 2005's The Great Raid, 2010's uh, Beneath Hill 60 and 2013's The Railway Man with Colin Firth. Yeah. 
the sound design, which I think was was really quite competent in this, was done by Adrian Belinsky. And the special effects were done by uh, Nicholas Burns. And um, the VFX were actually done by a lot of personnel from uh, the Weta Digital Workshop. Um, so really quite a competent uh, crew behind it. Uh, in terms of historical advisor on the film, uh, the, the uh, Australian historian uh, Peter Brune, who's written extensively on uh, Kokoda and, and this theatre of, of war, um, was the, the principal historical advisor. And it looks like he, he did a good job of directing um, the, you know, the, the, the writers and uh, the director to get in some really interesting details into the film. But I have a feeling that Grierson also did quite a lot of his own research, um, given his other subject matter that he's, he's made, the, made films on, including uh, Para's War. Um, I think he, he probably has an eye for detail. I think it does show, actually. I think that um, the, the historical reality here is quite striking, actually. I think it may actually have been slightly overdone, and we can come on to that later uh, in terms of how the Japanese were portrayed. But I think one of the important things to bear in mind when, we're, when you're watching the film is to recognise that the Japanese were being portrayed as they were being perceived in the minds of the soldiers they were fighting. So the yes. soldiers, you know knew that the Japanese were coming. They'd been told terrible things about the Japanese. They knew that they were fearsome fighting animals and all the rest of it. So the way in which the Japanese are presented really um, uh, meets those de depictions. It, it's, not, it's not the actual reality, but it's, mm. it's done really, really well. And I think, I think um, the way in which they've identified the story around being these men you know, they're officers. It's worth staying at, staying at the outset. This is a true story. Um, uh, and it's modelled on an actual patrol left, uh, led by a Lieutenant Sword. Uh, but that, uh, in the film, the, the officer is killed right at the outset. And it's the soldiers having to come up with decisions and, and mm. deal with the reality fighting and the terrain and all this sort of stuff as they as they best could do it. That's, that's quite a challenge to get, actually. And I, I think they did a pretty good job of it. Yeah, me too. It's um, you you, it you don't it doesn't let you forget that they're civilian soldiers as well, which I think I quite enjoy. So you get that element of, you know, obviously they're going to play more into their fears because they're not they're not soldiers every day of their lives. Yep. So yeah, and it's their first combat, or you know they've seen some combat before going into the line. So you you still get that at the end where they get the whole, you know, bloody chocos and AFI chumming it together at the end and you get the sort of banter between the regular soldiers it doesn't let you forget who they are which i quite like because sometimes movies can do that where it just it's sort of the you know the characterization falls apart even though there isn't much characterization in terms of learning who the men are you know whether they've got sweethearts back home etc it does remind you of at least remind you of the unit that they're portraying which i do quite like because then you see it from a different angle then you can sort of realize that these men are just they're just men at the end of the day. They're not, yeah. they're not soldiers, really. I, I do yeah. think that's one of the stronger parts of the movie. Uh, the film was shot uh, in Queensland on Mount Tambourine, and I think it stands in rather well. Um, some of those yeah. um, landscape shots that we get and the, the panning shots up looking over the, 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 um, the ridgeline and down at the, the men climbing up the, the sides of the hills is, is really quite striking and, and keys in nicely with photographs and footage from from the actual campaign hmm. i think that's absolutely right i think the the, the the real challenge i mean we talked about this with um um the long shot and the tall is is how difficult it is to capture the 
realities of the terrain and the, the context of the environment. And this is where I think the film triumphs because you not only get the, the mud and the, you know, in, in watching the feet climb up slowly up the, uh, up the, um, the track, you get a sense of the exhaustion created by this um, terrible terrain uh, and the monsoon as well. And, that, that, mm. and, and the night as well, the night comes early in the jungle. And, uh, and it's always wet and it's miserable. This is not a place where humans survive well. And, you know, in the first in the first few minutes of the film, this is quite overwhelming. And you get a real sense of, I mean, this is a terrible place to have to fight a war. Uh, and that's yeah. really the experience of everyone who fought, um, both in Burma and um, and in New Guinea, of course. It's, uh, they had to fight the elements and survive even before they began to consider fighting the Japanese. Yeah, it's a very it's very like um, sensual film, isn't it? There's a lot of there's a lot at play. It's with you know, the rain hammering down and the, as you say, the mud and stuff. It's all the sound effects. Everything is yeah. the atmosphere it creates. They overdo it slightly with um, one of the actors um, portraying a soldier looking for his mate, and he's covered in mud. I mean, he's he's head to toe in mud. In fact, later on in the film. When they're replaying that piece, he's not so heavily covered. So there's a bit of a yeah. It's like an there. elaborate dream sequence, isn't yeah, it? Yes. It's like a nightmare, it's isn't right. it? Where it, it's I did nightmare. like that. Yes. I think that whole opening sequence that we've been talking about is so effective because not only does it introduce you to the location that the men are fighting mm -hmm. in, but it also um, keys into all of the, the the difficulties of fighting in in that terrain where he's oh, he's completely submerged. Someone pulls him out. Um, obviously, it turns out to be a bit of a nightmare sequence because he finds his brother and his brother has a snake in his belly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is quite visceral. And I thought that kind of stopped that sequence dead a little bit for me. I thought yeah, that is a little bit too much, but I suppose that's forgivable because it's a nightmare dream sequence type thing. And, it is yeah, the kind and that, of thing was a, that, that was the same for me, but, you know, it's understandable. It's, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was a nice little cold. I, I enjoyed it too. Yeah. And mm. I liked the way that they... they um, they nodded back to it at the, the end of the film the where end, he was yes. looking for his brother, you know, uh, in reality. Um, and yeah. we got that same slightly less exaggerated shot of, of him clambering and, and struggling in the mud. And then that nice panning shot of, of the trail. Mm. As it is, again, it's the, it's the whole sort of the homage to the actual footage from the Kokoda Frontline documentary and the, the other bits of footage that were shot by the Australian cameraman there. I think that's, one of the things I really enjoy about this movie that is using its primary source material very effectively. And I really like that. Um, but maybe we should just talk about the cast very quickly because it it's an interesting cast. Um, we've got Jack uh, Finister as Jack Schult. He was in Neighbours. He's most recently been in Home and Away. There's a lot of really prominent Australian t television actors in this one. Uh, you have Simon Stone as Max Schult. He's the brother that you were talking about with the, the snake in the belly. Uh, he's an actor and director. He was in an, an Australian medical drama called MDA, and he most recently directed The Dig, uh, the Netflix film with Ray Fiennes oh, wow. about the, uh, oh, wow. the the archaeological dig, uh, mm. which I thought was quite interesting. Mm. Uh, Steve Marquand as Sam. Um, he's the Bren Gunner. Uh, he's prolific, uh, another prolific TV actor, Home and Away, and he was in uh, Beneath Hell 60 as well. You have William McInnes as the Colonel. Um, he narrated the Slap TV show, if you remember that one. I remember it being quite a quite a well-known uh, Australian export back in the day. Um, and he was in a, a series called Martial Law as well. But he worked for free um, for the movie. He did a day's worth of shooting. And he cited his admiration for the actual chaps who did the fighting. And he said, you know, if this movie helps people to remember their 
their experiences, um, then he really wanted to work on the movie and he worked for free. Um, Shane Bourne as the doctor. He was also in the MDMA. Uh, MDMA, that's not right. <laughs> he was also in the MDA uh, medical drama. And he was in the Australian version of Are You Being Served in the 80s, if you can remember that one, anybody out there. <laughs> I, I would love to see that. Yeah. <laughs> I and can't imagine a, what that's like. No, it, it still had the... Um, I think it still had John Humphreys in it when I was doing a bit of researching. Um, oh, really? Okay. Mm. Yeah, it did, yeah. And you have Travis... Sorry. Yes, yeah, weird one, isn't it? You have Travis McMahon as Darko. Uh, he was in a film called Cactus and in a, in a few other dramas there. Angus Simpson as Dan. He was in Mad Max Fury Road. Tom Budge as Jono and Luke Ford as Burke, who also um, is in Paris War, or Paris War and uh, Deadline Gallipoli. So it's all, they're not huge stars outside of australia um but within australia they i think they're very well known tv personalities I think some of the actors went on to be in the australian version of dancing with the stars but it, it's not <laughs> it, yeah it's not a movie that it, it's as we said with um long and short and the tool even though these these men aren't possibly well known outside of australia i think it helps these sorts of movies because when you're watching the attack force c you're well aware that's mel gibson and sam neil Mm. who go on to have huge, huge careers and it can pull you out of certain scenes. But this movie really is, I think, more, much more effectual because they're sort of every men. It doesn't pull you out. You're not thinking, oh, there's a, you know, pick, pick a star like you know, Channing Tatum or whoever doing a dodgy Australian accent. These are actual Australians telling Australian stories that, that made by an Australian team. It's, um, mm. I think that's one of the really good things about these movies, all the movies we've covered. Is that, and they're all very competent as well. And they're all very good. They're all very. I, competent I think. Movies. I think that's the point that I was going to make as well. I think for for outside outsiders not knowing who these individuals are, it's a very powerful film because they act so brilliantly well. Mm. You know, I can't think of any of them um, that I wouldn't have put into those into those roles. They all did yeah. it. They they play their roles really really well. There's no overacting. There's not, not none of the stuff that we've seen. We saw in the fifties and sixties where people were. You know, they would they would act to a part. They were just being, the, the, yeah. the, you know, the, themselves. There's a hard, difficult environment, and they just got into it. It was a really, really, it's really impressive, actually. There's a realism to it, um, yes, and, which I think. But I got a review here this week from the Sydney Morning Herald from April 2006 when the film was released. And I'll just read you a, an excerpt from the end of the review. So it says, Grayson directs the early fighting with a good sense of panic and confusion. Some men adapt quickly and they're good at it. Others bolt and are soon dead. The realism of these jungle skirmishes is one of the best things about the movie. Grierson gives them great immediacy and doesn't really matter who's who, just what they do. The movie is less successful in the quieter scenes. When characterization does matter, none of them is fully realized character and that reduces the film's dramatic power. They're more like sketches, each of whom will be given a scene in which to show his metal. That's the film's shortcoming. It's all of the lonic decency of the Australian soldiers who fought on the Kokoda Trail is easy to understand, but it's not drama enough. When the impulse becomes when the impulse becomes to pay tribute, drama sometimes disappears. Do you know what? I think that's that's actually fair, isn't it? Because they are a whole series of vignettes that um do depend on the characterization of each of the of the the, the roles, and some are stronger than others. There's there's no doubt about yeah. that. Um, but I think I think um, that's being really pernickety about it. I think if you step back and you see the whole story mm. as as one, well, how, how do you take six or seven men in a in a section without an officer? 
you've got to character you've got to emphasize the characterization then you've got to try and keep it together so you've got to have some individual scenes and then you've got to keep it rolling together i think actually they do a pretty good job actually and i think you know there are there are some um um some of the the roles were played stronger than others but i think on the whole they did a jolly good job in bringing it together mm. you get a real sense of i mean the one thing that that review doesn't mention is the psychological dimension i think that's that's a really powerful part of the film and it struck me right from the beginning that you're really sitting in the head of these guys um struggling with their own demons and struggling with you know they don't know each other really they they they're not mates yet um, mm. they you know there are people you know one you know, people are trying to uh, assert their authority when the platoon commander's killed um, how do you stop people running away and you know getting banded by the Japanese you know how do you keep everyone together and that's the the the, the terror the, the psychological discipline all that sort of stuff is actually played really well I was I was very impressed with that mm. I think that's interesting because you can you can see it that way. And then you could also say that it strikes a balance quite well because you can go too far with characterization. Mm. And when you think about a film like this, it's uh, a section of lads that have been thrust together. Some of them know each other quite well, others don't. But I think there's enough on the bones of the characterizations and the way it's written that when one of them dies, you feel for them. You know, it, mm. th there's when there's an argument, you you side with someone. So you've mentally formed a, an attachment and you've formed opinions on on these characters and, and what their choices are and what they do. For instance, um, when uh, the, the, the brain, gun, brain gunner's number two says, we need to go and look for him. Um, you know, I forget that. I forget the chap's name. Is it Bluey? I think it might be Bluey. That, yeah, Bluey or John. stays behind. Yeah. yeah, one of the Brent Gunners. Anyway, and he says he didn't give a shit about you. He wasn't your friend. He wasn't your mate. And the guy's crestfallen. And those are moments that build the characters for the viewer, I think. And it could have gone the complete opposite direction and given us lots of exposition about their lives and their backgrounds and what they'd done before the war and where they'd come from. But... I think that would have been unnecessary in this because mm. one, it, they're in the jungle, they're cut off behind essentially enemy lines. So they wouldn't have been talking and having big conversations about what, they, what they're going to do when they get back home and, you know, whether they've got a girlfriend or not and all those classic war film tropes. Yeah, there's no time for the tropes, is no, there? That's what I like about it. The, the, this is set over, I think it's 26th to the 30th of August was the Battle of Isarava. And that this this patrol that it was based on was was uh, trying to get back to the to the main line and they're behind enemy lines for the majority of that time so they aren't going to be talking about insignificant things it's going to be very much to the point in the moment so there isn't room for that characterization to to grow and i think there's enough within their interactions that it it connects you to them and, and you feel involved and invested I think that's absolutely right. And I think that is actually the power of the film. That we, you, we aren't given the backstories that then sort of um, influences either way to these characters' um, personalities. That they, you know, what we see is, is what we get. It's, it's in the moment, it's um, the terror, yes, it's the Japanese attack, it's the jungle, it's trying to deal with each other, it's trying to deal with lots and lots of um, unusual circumstances that's being thrown at these young men and they have to decide there and now what to do about it. And yeah. um, I mean, I think the extraordinary thing about this story is how all these individuals do come together as a team. And by the end of it, you know, they are 
welded together by blood and experience. And that's a powerful, it's a very powerful way of, of, um, of telling the story. And I think the filmmakers achieve what they set out to do. This is pretty yeah. clear. And it, you can either, when you're doing a film, you can either say it at the start, this is what the story is about, or you can just let it happen. And you can see right in the final scene where the, um, the chap from the um, 2nd, 16th Battalion says, you know, we need some help. And the Chocos, you know, almost you know, without being told, actually, pick up their weapons and wander off to go and help the men, men of the AIF um, fight the Japanese. You know, they were a team. And, and that experience had welded them together. And you could see it, that was a product of the film and it was achieved pretty well. Interestingly, they wanted to make a much bigger film. They wanted to do more of, a, of a, an overarching film about the actual campaign, but budget restraints saw them go for just that one section. Yeah, I read that and too. Perhaps, perhaps it's for the better, I think. Maybe it gives it a more personal touch than a, a broader top-down view of a of a battle like that. I think maybe some of it may have been lost if they'd gone broad. I think one of perhaps. the really interesting things is, yes, when the survivors of the, of the 39th Battalion got back to the lines, you could tell, they did this really well, you could tell who were the Chocos and you could tell who were the regular soldiers, the regular soldiers strutting around with the classic discipline and wearing their hats and all this sort of stuff. You know, so I think that um, they did tell that story very well and when they were in the trench together, there was no difference between the Chocos and the Mm. The, the, and the regular soldiers so yeah it would have been great to have a, a full story of the campaign but they didn't they, they achieved a really good um combination with the shorter mm. film i agree and yeah. before we move on we always ask our listeners what they think and we got some good one word reviews this week ad bond says mateship jonas grumby goes with humate um our own historical firearms matthew moss says big brain energy that's a yeah. favorite of the show <laughs> uh, trevor eswoods goes with bonza and finally, we have uh, Michael Nelson, who says muddy, which you can't argue with that. The film was no, very muddy. Not. Um, but I think the consensus across the board, when we mentioned it a couple of weeks ago, I know we had a uh, friend, Woody, of World War II TV. He, he um, was talking about the speech given at the end. Um, and I know that the, the general consensus is this is a, a real gem of a movie. And, and I think it's, as we've mentioned in the last 20 minutes, it, it, it is a really interesting film. So maybe we should go into the alley tally, talk a little bit more about the kit and the historical things on the show. It's time for alley tally on fighting on film. Rob, you're our you're our guest this week. You're, you're in the hot seat. <laughs> I think they did it really well. I think um, seeing the 1942 equipment, they did they, it was just spot on actually. Um, seeing the SMLEs and um, uh, and the, the the Tommy guns, which was, was which is particularly powerful because of course, as we know, this was before the Owen gun arrived, and. Um, the one thing we didn't see was a Lewis gun because uh, battalions at that time had uh, were equipped with Lewis guns. This is before the Bren arrived. Um, but uh, you know, this is a, a particular bugbear of mine because I think this was portrayed really well in the film, which is the importance of automatic weapons in the jungle. And mm. um, the Bren guns and the, the Tommy guns really did make an enormous impact. The Japanese had three automatic weapons in every uh, section. They were heavily uh, automated. Um, and yet, if you compare what the Australians um, experienced in New Guinea with what the Indian Army experienced in Burma, many Indian soldiers had never, ever heard, let alone seen 
else the other other way around seen let alone heard an automatic weapon until the japanese turned up Mm. So the, the, they they got that very very right. I mean, the, the, apparently uh, we've heard today that the um, you know the Bren guns turned up later uh, in time for the real defence of the the ridge. But um, seeing them portrayed like that in the um, uh, in the film was really good. I like the um, emphasis on the Japanese use of bayonets. Um, Japanese were very much a sword based army. They believe that fighting with swords was the epitome of the samurai experience and you could only really fight properly if you did it with a sword so officers never ever had rifles or weapons of any kind they always just fought with their swords which is why so many uh, of them lost their lives and uh, and soldiers also would fight with a bayonet and there's a famous scene where um corporal wolstead is is killed with the bayonet and that particular scene itself actually um i like i like the psychological territory he's hiding from the japanese soldier uh he rolls out eventually thinking the japanese soldier's gone and the man is standing above him i've read quite a lot around the malayan campaign where there's lots of those sorts of experiences where uh, from the Japanese perspective, Japanese records describe killing Australian soldiers in exactly that way. They would, you know, they were almost like lambs to the slaughter because they would, they didn't know how to react. They were, they were frankly caught in terror. In fact, I was reading some of them today. So I thought, you know, the, the Ali Tally, brilliant for me. I think, you know, the, the historical um, advisors to the film got it absolutely right. I mean, you know, you know what it's like sitting watching films and they've got the wrong weapons and. Mm. And I, well, actually, the one thing yes. I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed was that young soldier, whose name I forget, trying to teach himself how to um, strip a Tommy gun that and get it back together again. Yeah. And, you know, and getting it wrong and, uh, and uh, taking a lot of time and always making a mess of it. Well, that takes me back to my soldiering days. And that's absolutely right. You know, you've got to get those, those drills slick. And it just you know, reminds you of how... Uh, green the chocos were yeah it comes guys. into play at the end where he's in the in the firing line there and, and he does have a jam and he instinctively knows how to sort the jam out and he you know if he hadn't have had that jam then he the guys yes. that come up on the flank he gives them a burst so everything has a reason that's another thing about the movie i like that everyone has a circle of an arc circle sort of their character even if it's a very small arc his arc yeah. is he's finally learned how to field clean his his thompson it's a really small thing but it's a really nice inclusion well i i like i mean everything you said there rob fantastic uh, i really like the uh, just the weathering of the of the men's equipment as they go along if this was a 50s war movie it, they'd come out of the jungle spick and span like like they do in um well a little bit like green beret yeah you know, like green all berets or something done. something like that yeah no one comes out pristine i like that you even like you know, rips in 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 but on buttons things like that it's just really nice to see because as you see in, in pictures of the of the chaps from the time you know they are grimy they are dirty um it's not, not since 2013 bombas has donated over 100 million socks underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness if we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Nice place to fight the jungle. And then just the small detail of, of men smoking cigarettes made out of book pages and things. It's just the little, the tiny little oh, yeah. details that yeah. make the movie. And it is one, I must admit, I, I for, for the first time in a while, I didn't actually sit up in my chair and go, well, what, what's wrong with that kit there? I didn't have to because um, I, I right. didn't think there was anything really out of place. One thing I did see, really panicky, but a guy's got a Thompson swing on a Lee Enfield, but that's like the only <laughs> very, very small thing there. Um, but that's incredibly small. Um, well, it may well, have, may well have been the case. It might happen. Sling and, and, and the yeah. only sling that was available was that. Of and course. You do chop and change things. That's and, very um, true. Matt, you make, make do and mend. True. Anything you like, Matt? We've touched on a lot of it already, but the, the Japanese kit's really great. I mean, the way that the film characterizes the Japanese is really interesting because it shows them as fleeting, almost ghost-like. And I'm sure we'll come on to that in a moment when we talk about favorite scenes. And Rob's already mentioned it. But when we do see them, they're, they're striking figures and they've, they've all got type 98 Arasakas. And then there's that great sequence of the ambush um, where there's a, a type 92 uh, medium machine gun or heavy machine gun um, set up. And, and that gets completely demolished by a burst from a Brennan and a Thompson. Um, but as we've already said, that the, the the big brain energy of this film is off the charts yeah, <laughs> because not only do we get a, a really good representation of a, a Bren team, we get a number one and a number two. It's like unheard of in movie land. Really. Yeah, that is extremely good. It is, you know, by the way, I, yeah, it's extremely good. Enjoyed that. We get to see uh, magazines being changed by the number two. We also get to see people filling um, magazines from charges yeah. as well. So there's a bit where they're in the shack and he, he's seen stripping yeah. rounds out of a five-round charger and he's putting them into a Bren magazine. Just those little, I suppose, small bits of doctrine and training that you don't normally see in a lot of a lot of war, war films is, is a really nice inclusion. And as, as you said, the, um, the the Thompson and the cleaning was was really interesting because at the beginning of the film, he struggles to line up the books and, and get the get the, the the butt to fit back into the receiver and then later on he's been timed by one of his, his his oppos and then at the end of the film it all comes into a full circle and it's it's that uh growth of character again so throughout that film we've seen him go from raw to being able to put a thompson back together after cleaning it in 10 seconds and being there at the moment when it's necessary to you know oppose mm. that flanking attack and then you're sad that he gets killed yeah. in the end anyway. He's he's shot in that moment of, in a way, he's, he's saved the flank, more even or less. The bit in that and... scene, even the bit in that scene where the, um, I forget the character's name, oh my gosh, um, when Sam's shouting for him to stick another mag in the top, he's not looking over his shoulder yeah. like going, oh, where, where is he? He's, he's, no, keeping, he's keeping his, his eye front. You know, yeah. keeping his gun on the enemy, which is another really great little detail. It's the armourer, props to the armourer and the historical advisor on this one. They must have really beamed in on the accuracy there well there's a little bit more to it than that actually and that is doctrine so military doctrine is really important here and i think this is one of the points that the film really does get fabulously right uh, one of the things people forget in the early years of the war was the uh, and some units and it's clear that the australians had um 
kept the importance of machine gun doctrine from the second from the first world war so in 1918 infantry platoons uh, after the well actually 1917 the infantry manual changed the structure of platoons and it was changed again in 1918 so that infantry platoons ended up with four sections um, one section was the machine gun section with two um, lewis guns and effectively think about platoons just being organizations that were that coalesced around the machine gun and everyone was there to protect the machine gun get the ammunition into the magazines for the lewis gun get the and and change the lewis all the soldiers would have um hessian sacks full of sometimes canvas bags full of uh, lewis gun magazines and they would just keep the gun firing that was the most important thing and the lewis gun could fire 400 rounds without um uh you know the barrel getting too hot it's exactly that doctrine which was translated to the bren gun they didn't change the doctrine at all the most important weapon in the platoon in the section and the platoon was the bren gun and they all the soldiers applied the same approach and it's really powerful to see and as a historian having studied infantry doctrine in 1917 some time ago but i do remember it this is really interesting actually because it's interesting to see the australians had retained a very clear understanding of the importance of the machine gun and the sections and platoons, but the British Army hadn't, mm. and the Indian Army hadn't as well. And it took the British and the Indian Army really until, well, probably 19, early 1944 to get that back. I think it's interesting as well. I think I was reading um, that they didn't have Vickers guns in the in the, the Kokoda Trail because um, they were they thought no. No, 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 no mortars, no. You know, you think no it's heavy machine. You know, you're you're, yeah. you're using the locals to, to help ferry men. I'm sure they would have been more than happy to help ferry heavier weapons up that track. I, I don't think they would have all... been happy to carry them. Well, maybe not, but yeah, I'm sure I'm sure they would have done <laughs> yeah. it if 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 it yeah. would have needed it. I just thought it was an interesting little thing there because I know there's a line in, sorry, in Perra's War, where he's saying, "Well, this yeah. didn't happen. They didn't have like Vickers guns." I think is a really throwaway line, um, which I thought was quite interesting anyway. But sorry, Matt, please continue. One other thing about the Brens I thought was really interesting. There's a scene early on where the, a lad scoops up some water in, a, in, a, in his helmet and throws it's it onto nice. the barrel. And his number one says, what the hell do you think you're doing? Because he's, I think he obscures his line of sight for a moment. Um, but the number two is think, thinking about mm. keeping the gun cool. It's really, really interesting. a really, really good point because um, you never saw a barrel change. Now, that's something that clearly would have happened on, no. on a regular basis. But, you know, you can't stick everything into a film. No. Uh, and, and then you've got to ask yourself, without, you, without that met, how do you change the barrel on a brain gun? It's very difficult. You know, very true. Um, anyway, that, there's that's too much detail. <laughs> but actually, I think for, for the for the someone who really understands machine gun doctrine, they the film got it right. Really impressive. Yeah, it's a it's a Bren fan's dream. This one, it really is. Um, even down to the sounds, like <laughs> and firing from the hip. And um, we haven't seen that in a film since Helen no, Career uh, on the pod. Yeah, so that's the sound nice. as well. Um, of the Brens firing, very distinctive. And they haven't just got a stock machine gun sound like you sometimes get. It's the actual Bren, the really distinct thud and, and, and yeah. the mechanism and everything. It's Yeah, there's a metallic yeah. ring to the end of a Bren. That's nice. Uh, it's the burst. cacophony of yeah, war in this sure. movie. It's Everything is so well. Mm. The sound design on the film is stunning, I think, really. It, the, the, they've managed to, to capture not only the, you know, the, the sounds of the jungle, but rain, the squelch yeah. of mud small arms fire uh, animals i think they capture yeah. it really beautifully i think that just elevates everything it does i was going to say that myself i think it it really lifts the film because it it could have been flat i think it could have it could have looked fantastic but if it had sounded flat then we we were 
we would have noticed. I, I think, think one of the points about the sound is that you really get a sense of um, so when you're firing in the jungle, um, you the, the the sound is captured in the immediate environment. It's almost as though you know it's swirling around you. It's not dissipated because you know the, the jungle is is keeping it in. You get a real sense of that in the film. Mm. So you know you're overwhelmed by the rain and the the fear, but also the noise. I mean, it really is pulsating, banging noisy you know battle is a noisy place and um and it's caught really well but then on the flip side the quiet is a killer as well because once yeah. once it goes silent you're thinking oh god the, you know, the japanese could be anywhere and that obviously might play into the myth but of, of the japanese sort of being these supermen but it it, mm. it kind of feels right in the way the movie portrays mm. it i feel it's you know you think gosh are they ever safe and they never feel like they're safe until they're back in the what's meant to be uh, Minari village at the end they never feel safe until they're there with all their mates it's it's quite a powerful thing um, but maybe we should move into fave scenes hello there sorry to interrupt i wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on patreon as thanks for your support you'll be able to help us pick films submit questions for guests have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch and much more thank you for your support now back to the show well, I, I like, there are lots of scenes that I could um, describe. The one I think I've chosen is where Corporal Wilstead, um, who's played by Ewan Leslie, is, is killed by a Japanese soldier. And he's, 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 he's run away from the rest of the section in terror uh, as the Japanese attack. And, um, you know, this is something you never do because you're um, better off with your mates together where your firepower can, can play... Um, you know, a bigger role than than yourself. He's actually terrified witless, so he's running away and he falls down on an incline and, and crawls under a sees a, a dead Japanese soldier and um, is horrified and crawls under a log and just wants to get away from it all. Uh, and of course he can't. And uh, eventually he comes out from under the log and he's staring at a Japanese soldier. Now, to, before I get to that particular scene, the Japanese are depicted, I think, you know, they are dressed fabulously well, probably over overly done. You know, it's as though all of those Japanese soldiers are on the combat parade ground. They've got everything right. Everything's perfect. There's no, you know, they are they are like. Uh, jungle supermen, and we know that they weren't. I mean, the, J the Japanese were a notoriously untidy soldier, and um, but it, it does play to the perceptions of the Australians here that they were fighting a top-notch, and they were fighting top-notch fighting men. And as I said earlier, you know this, you know he's lying there in terror. He's watching this Japanese guy with a bayonet right near his eye, and then the next bit, you don't get a you don't get a reprieve. He's not he's not let off or taken prisoner the Japanese soldier bayonets him through the eye and kills him. And, uh, and th th that is, a, as I said earlier, a common experience. I mean, uh, the, the Japanese liked using the bayonet. They thought that this was a particularly um, virtuous way of fighting. And um, in the early years of the war, actually, the, um, there was lots, particularly from the Malayan campaign, there's lots of evidence of just bayonet fighting, in, in, particularly in the, in, the, in the dark. And of course, this, this um, reinforces all the fears of the soldiers there. They're fighting someone who's ferociously competent mm. and, and, and nasty and all this sort of stuff. It's it, all those terrors are you know, coalesced together. Yeah. But that's my favorite scene, I think, because you get a sense of um, the terror, um, the, the fact that actually these were ordinary men 
running away from battle you know they this is yeah. you need real discipline to stay in battle when someone's firing at you and to and to return fire and you know do something sensible and um and i think that uh it's 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 captured it very very well the way that scene's actually shot is is quite masterful it's a combination of close-ups and then it pulls out to show a, a wider angle of um uh the, the corporal on the ground and then the um the, the japanese soldier stood over him with the bayonet at the ready and the way that that shot is is really effective because you get uh, a sort of a point of view shot from the corporal you see the bayonet um, in his face and then you realize that it's lined up with his you know his actual eye it's not aimed yeah. at his body it's it's aimed at his head um and he, he goes into like a low thrust it's just such yeah. a shocking moment and then you get that air shattering yeah. scream from the corporal which just ebbs away yeah. quite quickly and it's yeah it's a really stunning sequence and it's there's a few of those in the film that are really quite effective yeah. like that i think in the same sort of way almost borrows from the horror movie genre where, you, where they're doing some of these things it's all very eerie and very sort of scary and gritty um you sort of feel that you could have the same sort of shot in a, a slasher film of someone getting impaled on a you know whatever um it feels the same mm. way i think it leans into some different aspects of, mo of movie making just to reiterate the the goriness and the bloodiness of war. I, I quite enjoyed the, the sort of, it didn't feel like a, uh, like a generic second world war movie in certain uh, sequences, which really is one of the film's strengths. Um, Matt, what about your favorite scene? The one that stands out to me is the sequence where um, Max is wounded uh, with a, with an abdomen wound. Uh, he's been left in the shack by the rest of the section uh, with, I can't remember. Is it Burke who stays behind with him? The young, the young lad. Um, this is the film's thing because they don't set exactly. anyone up very well so it's hard to remember sometimes well you know them by looking at them but it's by name yeah, I, I couldn't tell you but anyway, exactly it's, it's, as well it yeah yeah exactly you can't tell some of them apart but it, that, it's, it doesn't really matter anyway but he's he stayed behind and inevitably the Japanese come by this village and they've been there before because they've already killed the, the locals uh, they're found amongst their own crops and it's that's quite a striking scene on its own um, which I, I thought was really uh, powerful that they buried them. They, yeah. you know, they mm -hmm. exhausted as they were. They they took the time to scrape out a, a grave for these uh, locals that had been killed, and then, um, they then they move on eventually uh, to try and get back to the lines because uh, I think that the brain gun is very adamant that he he wants to to get back into the fight. But anyway, the um the Japanese arrive at the little hamlet again and um. The, the soldier that stayed behind with the, with with Max, the wounded man, decides that the best way to you know, protect Max is to is to lure the Japanese away. So he fires a fires a round at them from his rifle uh, and then dashes into the jungle. And this sequence is is really great because it, it illustrates quite nicely how the film creates tension in a in a really organic way. So we've got the tension of Max knowing that the Japanese are going to come in any second and he can't reach his rifle, and then. At the same time, in the jungle, um, the, the young soldier Jono. that's run off into the jungle is is. Uh, thank you. He's waiting for the Japanese to to come round the bend, essentially, uh, and he's he's ready with his rifle over a tree trunk, um, and there's a number of shots of, of of over his shoulder looking down the track, waiting, and that the, they're not there, and he doesn't understand why they aren't appearing. And then we get an almost smash cut of he turns, and then there's three Japanese. Uh, soldiers right behind him and 
it's one of those shots that reinforces that wraith-like, ghost-like um, portrayal of the Japanese in this film. They're festooned with bits of brush and, and greenery. So, they've, you know, got that great field craft going. Um, and they're ruthless. They, As soon as he turns around, they all pounce on him, firing and stabbing. And that's it. That's the end of the scene for him anyway. And the tension of that moment and then the tension of Max trying to reach his rifle only for one of the locals, I think he looks like a village elder perhaps, turns and comes through the door um, after, I think I think he may have seen off the Japanese out of shot. Um, it's just a very powerful little little scene that, yeah. th- that shows how well the film creates yeah. that tension. And also it, it, it's a great little piece of narrative showing the end of one character and you know mm. you know the saving of another i think that's a really it's nice. powerful it's good scene. and it shows the relationship between the locals and the australians as well in one in tiny in a little yeah. way mm. you know now you know that he's been found and he's going to make it back or there's a very high chance he's going to make it back now which i, I also think that is a nice yeah. thing to lean into that the movie does well one of the very interesting things that it does is it demonstrates also um one of the reasons why what were known as, you know, the local New Guineans, known as the Fuzzy Wes, was the Angels, supported the um, the diggers. And this is because the Japanese treated them so badly. And it's exactly the same story in the hills of Nagaland and Assam and, and through Burma. Whereas the Japanese never really understood yeah. that what they need to be doing is getting the locals on side. Mm. And, um, you know, if they'd left the locals alone or, you know, paid for their food or, what you know, then, then they would have been. They would have had less inclination to support the Australians. But the opposite was the case. And yeah. you know, right through the film, you get a minds. really clear sense about the amazing support given to the 39th Battalion and the the regulars of the AIF by the local uh, New Guinea um, men. R- really quite powerful. And, and also, and it needs to be said, the, a depiction, a very good depiction, and not, not that it's good, but a clear depiction of the brutality of the Japanese army, because we, you know, you can't have a film about the Imperial Japanese army without the rapine and the, the their brutality being expressed in some way. And I think they did it particularly well. They're learning the Japanese's tactics firsthand. Yes. They haven't had the time to you know, reassess how they're going to fight them. All the things those men must have been hearing going into Moresby was, oh, the Japanese are awful. They do this, they do that. Leaning into that anti-Japanese propaganda that the the West propped up throughout the whole entire war. So I, I kind of understand they went for that, even if unconsciously did it, but whether they went for that depiction of the Japanese, just maybe to make it feel a bit more authentic for the men that were being portrayed, perhaps. But for me, it's got to be the end sequence where they've all made it. Well, the two main characters, Sam and uh, Jack, have made it back. As long as were Jack's brother, they're in the line to see the doctor, and he's like, "Come on, lads, what's what's it going to be? Is it bums and bums, tums and you know whatever?" He's giving it the whole sort of you know, kindly doctor speech, and a runner comes in, and the runner is all dishevelled and looks like he's been you know been through it, and the, the boys all around that look you know look exhausted, wounded, look like they're on death's door. Some of them just instinctively know that they're going to be called, they're either going to be called on the line or asked to volunteer and they all get up and they start walking away and the doctor, there's music building. The doctor just says, boys, boys, like what are you doing? Like, no, don't, what the hell are you doing? You know, but then the rains come down. And for me, it's like the washing away of the, of the sins. It's washing. It's, it's very poetic little bit of filmmaking there that, you know, the, the rain exonerating the men before they go and fight the big battle at the end powerful piece of filmmaking um that i wasn't expecting 
I like that particularly because what it did is it it showed that the disaggregated individuality of the early scenes has now been created, you know, has now been has now coalesced into this sense that the only way they're going to get through this is by working as a team and there are no individuals this is this is the yeah. team this is this is the whole um platoon or company going out to fight the japanese it's quite powerful working together um you know if you work individually you'll get um separated by the japanese and, and killed if you work together it's a different different story another scene that plays into that is um a little bit earlier on where Jack has been wounded in the leg and they wake up in the morning to find he's gone and um, they, they, they move off and it shows him sat in a tree trunk just yeah. within the camp um, because he's slowing them down and he's made the decision not to carry on. Well, he, he's made the decision um, to go on at his own speed and not to, not to hold them back. And I think that that's really quite powerful. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm, there's all little sort of little self-sacrificing moments, you know, Mm. Bit, bits of courage all the way through and I think the one thing I really really another thing I think that the movie did excellently was for me at least I think it's one of the best uses of primary source material in a movie um used so the character called it's called the lieutenant you don't you don't get a name um but I think he's meant to be based on uh lieutenant colonel Ralph Honor or Herner um of the 39th uh, militia battalion and he gave a speech quite a, a famous speech in Minari village um, I won't read it all. I'll read a little bit from the end. It's a man's nobility made transcendent in the fiery crucible of war, faithfulness and fortitude, gent gentleness and compassion. I'm honoured to be your brother. And it's played over men who are lined up. You know, they look as battered and bruised as they did when they went into the line. Some men, are they've all got their sticks. It's a, it's a shot for shot almost of the, a scene in Kokoda front line. There's lots of pictures on the AWM of this speech, but it's such a great use of that of that speech because it's it's true it happened reviewers i think un unfairly said it was soapy and it, it, it felt too twee and sweet but this actually happened yeah. he did say this to his men you know people for people think officer class sometimes very stiff uh, you know we get that horrible uh, stiff upper lip thing that, that we think of british officers that they get unfairly represented but this this man's just showing admiration for what his troops have just been through and you feel it as a viewer at the end of this movie, you've gone through the same experiences of all of these men. And then to get the, the kind words from the CEO, even though it might not make the experience of war go away, but it, it at least they get thanked because sometimes these movies don't go into that. And it's just a great way to end the movie. I love that, actually. And, uh, and you're right. It's, it's, it's very authentic. And I think it was very done very well. And I think the really important thing about this in battle is uh, having someone... Uh, and the commanding officer, or the company commander, or the battalion commander is great where it happens, who can articulate um, this sense of comradeship and sacrifice they've all been through and the oneness that they now experience, because that's what battle does, is, is really, really powerful. And, um, and I can tell you now, this wouldn't have sounded cliched to the men. They would have mm. recognised, you know, looking at the boss who had been through it all themselves, who was as dirty and as dishevelled and as exhausted as the rest of them, that they had come through the crucible of fire, as he described it, crucible of battle, and they had they had triumphed. And this was this was a, a very very important moment in the in the team, and indeed in you know in the Australian sense of itself and its ability, the Australian ability to fight the Japanese and defend Australia. This is a 
really seminal moment in the film. This isn't just a, a battalion of diggers in the New Guinean hills. This is the defense of Australia. This is something really quite extraordinary they've achieved. And he's, a, he's, a, he's put it into words. It's really important mm. for soldiers to have that put into words in a way that they understand. And they all knew, you know, they knew in their hearts that they had achieved something significant. Yeah, there's a great documentary called um, uh, for the 50th anniversary. It's on the RWM, AWM, sorry. It's Kokoda Track of Hell or something. But the, all the all the veterans that were there for that speech, you know, they they say how how great it was to hear that and gave them solace. And, and you know, yeah, exactly right. It's a very powerful. I've seen the same documentary. It's very it's powerful. great. Isn't yeah. it? It's fantastic. Um, maybe we should go final final thoughts. Hello, I'm Al Murray, and you're listening to Fighting on Film, the world's number one war film podcast. Well, final thought for me, a really powerful film, and I, I hadn't seen this before, and I, I'm a little bit sceptical about Australian um, war movies. I remember Gallipoli, and, uh, and I just felt that uh, there was too much Brit bashing going on, and, um, and I just thought, you know, this is perpetuating some myths, um, that are really unfair and we, we know where they were made. But actually this one surprised me. This was a really good, gritty, psychological thriller. It was accurate so far as I can um, determine. It was really well made. I mean, it, um, it's worth watching again. And um, it's not an easy film to watch and you need to you know, sit down and be prepared for it. But it's, I think it's a, it's a bit of a triumph actually. Yeah. I'd sentiment that. Matt, what about you? I think it's a beautifully shot film. I think I think in terms of filmmaking, it's perhaps one of the best uh we've 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 seen and, and we've seen some really good ones during this mm. this Anzac month. Um we've we've looked at some really great films. But the way it's shot, the canted angles, the close-ups, those beautiful panning shots, the atmospheric um sound design on the film all all add up to create a really atmospheric authentic feeling film that tells a story that no other filmmakers really gone into which i think is is an interesting um thing to note that other than the, the original uh, documentary uh made during the war we there aren't really many that have, that have touched on kokoda um i thought it was really great to see the the papua new guinea um war carriers the, the fuzzy wuzzy angels depicted in in such a realistic generous proper way i thought mm, yes. that was really admirable um, admirable um i love the way that the film created tension and I, I really liked um the 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 organic way that the relationships between the men grew over the the, the few days that were with them in in that you know the patrol as it as it reaches back to the lines and the big brain energy <laughs> you can't like that i mean it just it's the cherry cherry on the top of the cake yeah. isn't it it's just it was it's yeah. a really solid film i would highly recommend any watch yeah, anyone watch it echo both of your sentiments there i mean i think it's one of the technically i think it's one of the best films we've covered um because it, it even though it's made in 2006 14 years 15 years ago whatever it is now um it still feels modern feels like it could have come out yesterday nothing dates this movie um yeah. you know it's 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 a part of the war that sometimes can get a little bit forgotten about i know we keep saying it it's the forgotten army the forgotten war in the far east but unfortunately i think it sometimes can feel that way um and it's just a very as we said as you've both said technically great the story's great the, char the characters are interesting as as it's it's a gritty film it's not a 
you know it's not a sort of all white smiles and oh isn't war isn't war great and isn't fighting and being a soldier fantastic at the end and we just beat the enemy we're going to go home and all have a piece of cherry pie it's not like that you know war isn't like that anyway um but as i said yeah it's just a fantastic film and it should be up there and it should be heralded with the greats from the genre um and it's another i think another great way of when a film doesn't quite have the budget to do what you want you can still do something that is as good learn what kokoda's done within the war movie genre let's have more of that let's have less sort of <laughs> b movie rubbish because you can still do it i think one of the reasons why the the film was so good is that uh, all, all of the the individual characters were played beautifully and they coalesce with as matt says with all the technical sophistication of the cinematographer's art i mean and that's quite unusual you know often there are gaps aren't there and um mm. but they weren't it's as though all the actors you know really knew what they were trying to get out of this and um and they played it beautifully it's um yeah. the, the seamless nature of the story and, and the way it's portrayed is is really powerful yeah it, exactly i mean we more than him we more than employ you to go and find a copy it sits out there in internet land it's available on dvd um, and you can rent it, I think, from YouTube as well, if you want to. So thanks again, Robert, for joining us. It's been a pleasure talking war movies with you. Thanks very much. It's been my pleasure. And thank you to everyone for joining us for Anzac Month as well. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I think it's been, I think it's been really great. I've really enjoyed watching all these various different Australian films. And we need to find some New Zealand war films for next Anzac Month, I think. Taika Waititi did one about the Ma- Maori uh, soldiers, the little shorts. Maybe we could chase him. Yes, I remember you saying, yeah, that'd be great to cover. Yeah, as Matt said, thanks for joining us into for Anzac Month. I know it bled into May, but who doesn't mind an extra Anzac film, especially when it's this good? Follow us on the socials, Facebook, Twitter, and at fightingonfilm.com, and we will catch you again next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, guys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.